Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Let's face it, the future is now. We're living in a connected cyber society, and we need to stop ignoring it or pretending that it's not affecting us. Join us as we explore how humanity arrived at this current state of digital reality and what it means to live amongst so much technology and data. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at devo.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marco Ciappelli with Redefining Society podcast and is part of ITSP Magazine podcast network, where more and more we have uh, new hosts, new story, new channels. But I, I stick with my guns, which is the relationship between society and technology, which uh, obviously never ran out of topic. It's uh, there's topics and topics and topics. Sometimes it's uh, chat uh, GPT, sometimes it's artificial intelligence, IoT, uh, smart cities. But there is one thing that really is affecting us directly. We hear a lot on the news and uh, something that unfortunately it makes me sad when it, it's, uh, it goes into political um, instrumentalization and political agendas because it's about our planet and uh, I don't understand why you just cannot get along and <laughs> really work with that. I have actually a quote uh, that, that I will probably throw in the conversation. But of course, I am excited. I'm not by myself. If you're watching the video, you can already see that Will Wiseman uh, from Climatize is with me. He has a, a, a very good story and a strong passion for for the environment, so I'm excited about that. If you're listening, uh, you're not watching, trust me, he's here, and as a matter of fact, Will, welcome to the show. Marco, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Great conversation ahead. I know we already kind of chat before the beginning of the recording, so let's start from actually the beginning, which is you. Tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how are you involved into this whole initiative and the fact that you are become very active at a young age uh, on this topic. Sure. Yeah. So uh, my name is Will Wiseman. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Climatize. Climatize is an easy and transparent mobile app that enables anyone to invest in renewable energy projects with as little as $5. 
the story of, of Climatize really starts in 2019. My co-founder and I, she and I joined the global climate strikes in Barcelona at the time. And while we were there, we saw over 100,000 people protesting in the streets for climate action. And I have this vivid memory of standing on a bench and looking over this sea of people. And there was this hope and there was this motivation and there was people from all ages and backgrounds. And yet it struck me with this sad realization that we were all going to go home and nothing was going to be different. And to me, seeing 100,000 people and feeling like we weren't going to achieve anything in that moment, that, that our best option was to make a cardboard sign. That to me was a glaring problem. And so my co-founder, she and I took time to go and we actually interviewed about 250 people from those protests. And we kept asking everybody, like, what is it? What is something that everyone could contribute? And lots of ideas came up. But one that kind of kept reoccurring was like, what if everybody pitched in a little bit of spare change or like, what if everybody pitched in a dollar? And so we kind of just we ran the numbers and we saw that from those hundred thousand people, if everybody pitched in a dollar, you'd have one hundred thousand dollars that day. And, you know, you could build a solar project with that. And if you did that for a year, you'd have thirty six million dollars and you could build a lot of solar projects with that. And, and on that day, Barcelona was just one of hundreds of cities and 7.6 million people showed up for those strikes. And so we ran those numbers. And if you if those 7.6 million people pitched in a dollar a day for a year, that'd be $2.75 billion per year. And that we realized, wow, this is actually a meaningful sum of money. And so that was kind of this catalytic moment of seeing that, wow, you know, there could be a way in which the public plays a very meaningful role in the energy transition and is no longer just kind of a neutral bystander, but actually an active stakeholder in accelerating the fight against climate change and, and the deployment of renewable energy projects. And so we really started kind of turning over ideas on that concept and really wanted to help reframe the way that people look at climate change, in particular, seeing that many times the solutions are proposed around sacrifice, needing to fly less, needing to eat less meat and change your diet. And those are both very important changes to your everyday life. But we realized that climate change is also an enormous opportunity. It's one of the largest economic opportunities of our lifetime to re-architect the entire global economy to be carbon neutral is a very meaningful turnover of everything that we've built to date. And we want to frame climate change around that opportunity and enable everyday people to actually benefit and gain from that opportunity as well. And so we had been researching kind of renewable energy crowdfunding as a rapidly developing business model in Europe. And fortunately, we actually won grant funding from the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority. And regulatory conditions changed that then made the U.S. a very attractive market. And so we actually pivoted our company and have since uh, sourced about $2 billion of projects. We have partnered with the Department of Energy. We have now gone through the full regulatory compliance process to get membership approval by the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority and register with the SEC. And we just launched the first investment offering in that solar project, which is a community solar array benefiting a low-income community. It was able to raise over $100,000 in just less than a week.
And so we see that there is this really meaningful coalition and group of people that want to really accelerate how we're uh, reacting and fighting climate change and do it through kind of a grassroots tech enabled way. And so that's kind of the, the heart and the story behind Climatize. A little background on myself. I had been on the renewable energy engineering side for about nine years now. So I've worked in engineering, procurement and construction. I've personally built over 15 solar arrays, worked on the project management side, government contracts, commercial industrial buildings, distributed energy resources, and then also in uh, AI for renewable energy power forecasting, overlaying weather data with distributed energy resource data, enabling those, those asset managers to bid more efficiently into markets up to two weeks in advance. And I recognize through the engineering side that oftentimes my impact, you know, those projects were going to take three to four years to materialize. And that wasn't necessarily the impact that I wanted to have. And so I went back and got two graduate degrees, a master's in energy engineering and a master's in sustainable energy technologies, and ultimately published a joint thesis with my co-founder from the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. And so through that program is where she and I started working together and kind of what then led to the birth of Climatize. Wow. First of all, impressive. <laughs> very, very impressive. And and what I like about this is that you, you're just... You're just not passionate about something and making and wanted to make a social change and 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 be part of the action. You know, go in the street, make your voice heard. You actually know the tech behind it, which, in my opinion, make you much more knowledgeable about everything. I'm not saying better than other because you need the passion to do this. But my my question is from from a perspective of someone that kind of see both sides and and probably also you know the legal uh, the best practices and regulation. The big question for me is that you hear in the news a lot is are, are we are we screwed? <laughs> are we on time? Are we doing on are we doing on time here? Right? Because you hear oh we're there, you know the the the. It's getting really bad. We need to act now. But then you start seeing proposition for electric cars and the industry pushing back because, you know, the jobs, changing things, oil companies, pressure, politics, and so on. So a honest perspective from you, where, where, where are we standing mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm a perpetual optimist in that I believe we have to make this change. You yes. know, there's not really we have any to be optimistic. Option. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I think that it is a very challenging problem in that in the best case scenario, nothing happens. That we don't destroy our world and we still appreciate the natural beauty around us and we don't see a, a collapse of the biosphere. The opposite is that we don't move and that we then trigger these feedback loops in which we cannot reverse. And the kind of world that we may see, uh, not in 50 years or more, you know, is frankly unthinkable in terms of conditions that are not suitable for humans to live in. I mean, there are real threats, particularly in India, Central America and Africa, where wet bulb temperature, I mean, the temperature and the humidity combination can rise above that in which, you know, humans really can survive. We can see major, you know, crop failures and that can then lead to major human migration. And so... 
the worst case scenario is not really a thinkable one. And from there, I think we need to then look at and react with the appropriate amount of urgency to try and achieve the best case scenario. We are running out of time. However, some of the new federal legislation here in the United States and globally, the policy that has then been implemented in reaction to new federal legislation like the Inflation Reduction Act is very promising. And I have been in the industry since since 2014. Like even back in high school, I was putting solar panels on roofs to pay my way through college. And, you know, back then the conversation wasn't there. The momentum wasn't there. Now, you know, we have things like the Super Bowl is full of EV commercials. That would have been unthinkable three or four years ago. And so there are these really promising signals that kind of the social momentum is building and the zeitgeist is shifting to be more ready for, you know, sustainability to be mainstream and to rethink kind of how we buy and consume products. And that's why, you know, we have high conviction about the timing of climatized now being suitable. You know, there are challenges with the macro picture. However, you know, people are demanding sustainable both investment and consumer products more than ever. And so we see that being a very promising sign. Now, the big point here is that we do need to very rapidly accelerate the capital that's being allocated to, in particular, renewable energy, because that is kind of the low hanging fruit in terms of how we actually decarbonize the macro economy. The first step is decarbonizing the electricity system. And that is very challenging because, you know, we as a society are continually using more and more energy. And so it's kind of like being on a treadmill where you are both trying to not only decarbonize the new demand, but then you're also trying to decarbonize the old baseload. And so that treadmill is increasing in speed. And yet we're having to not only replace old assets, but build new assets to also, you know, be 100% renewable. And so it's a very tricky challenge, but it's one that is now getting the appropriate amount of, you know, attention and then capital is following. And with that capital is also seeing this kind of new entrant of talent across, you know, many of these tech layoffs have led to new talent entering the climate tech space. And so, you know, among many of the companies that are laying off talent, climate tech in particular is one that is still hiring and has stayed resilient despite those downturns. So a uh, long winded way of saying I'm optimistic, but we need to move a lot faster. Well, it's not just about being optimistic, but you also gave some concrete uh, perspective on what can make it work. And if you've been around long enough, you know that in society and, and politics, which is always the art of compromise, it was mm -hmm. defined as that mm -hmm. and still is. What really make a difference at the end, it's, it's the money, right? Show me the money. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. there is a return, well... You know, maybe we'll make it happen. So mm -hmm. I think that I agree with you. I mean, definitely we're starting to see this shift. And by starting, I think we not just starting in the beginning, but we, we are there there. So now we need to, I feel like to need the infrastructure that we have again to say, look, not only you're going to save money if you get the electric car, but you're also not going to get stranded in the middle of the street because you run out of mm -hmm. electricity because there is not a column or 
you know, a, a big uh, <laughs> energy refueling mm-hmm. station as you can find a gas station everywhere. So there is an involvement uh, that it needs to come from, from the top. So on mm-hmm. one side, I'm a big fan of everybody making a lot of noise. I mm-hmm. support the five dollars. Um, mm-hmm. I support that you know it's it's you that can prevent a fire like Smokey the Bear. Like each one should get his own responsibility. But there's also like this this moment of really realization that the the big guys, the countries, mm-hmm. the government, mm-hmm. they need mm-hmm. they need to play and. And I'm wondering if you have an opinion on on that side. So regulation, you you were comparing Europe with the U.S., India probably think completely different, China, mm-hmm. Japan. Mm-hmm. What what is your vision here? I mean, are we are you still optimistic about what will come together as a country? Because you know, if the U.S. does something, is a lot, but it's mm-hmm. probably not going to be enough. We're all on this together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, you have a really good point in that, you know, climate change sees no boundaries. And that's very apparent, I think, right now you can look and and there are, you know, fires raging in the Canadian forests. And yet that smoke is blowing down into, you know, Central America and, and, you know, into Colorado and the Midwest here. And it just goes to show that, you know, these kind of climate disasters do not care about borders. And so, It's very important that governments ultimately set up the framework that enables then private markets to follow. Things like the Inflation Reduction Act that had, you know, $369 billion earmarked to then support these private industries, that sets the foundational framework for then private markets to come in and accelerate that. So even the Inflation Reduction Act and all of that money is only expected to see about 40% reduction of the U.S. carbon footprint. We still have to figure out how we're going to hit the other 60%. But that catalytic capital and those incentives have led to, um, you know, there are now 39 battery manufacturing facilities that are in development across the U.S. And that would not have been the case had there not been those carrots for those companies to then go and pursue. And they may have thought about, you know, potentially co-locating those facilities in China or in Europe. Now the incentives make it more attractive for them to do that in the U.S. And that's very, very important for us having that demand, like domestic manufacturing capacity for energy resilience and, and energy security as well, as well as it can create new jobs, which, again, creates that kind of virtuous cycle that can help accelerate and build social movement, build kind of the political capacity for us to have then, you know, a better entrenched uh, economy around renewable energy. And that is where I am optimistic as well about the political resilience of certain um, legislation like that, because it is very hard to pull those carrots back. You know, when there are communities and politicians that have then signaled that they're going to be bringing in, you know, a billion dollars of new investment into their their territory, and that's going to lead to, you know, hundreds of new jobs those are harder to pull back than say, you know, potentially carbon taxes or things in which when people look to save money, they aim to those cost centers. And so that's why I'm optimistic that at least, you know, we saw the Inflation Reduction Act pass. And I want to believe that it will stay resilient, especially in, you know, these kind of debt ceiling conversations now. 
I have heard that, you know, some of those incentives may be what's, you know, kind of in negotiation. And I hope that they stay because for the United States to really build a resilient clean energy industry is one of the major industries that will give us a competitive edge into the remainder of this century. And if we look at short-term gains by essentially stripping out what will give us a long-term competitive edge, we're not thinking long-term and how to actually position the United States as a competitive economy. And so, you know, to those political groups, I hope that they think about the long-term impact of potentially those short-term gains if they really want to cut those programs and incentives. Yeah, no, it, may, it makes sense. And I think uh, like in every major cultural change, social shift, whatever you want to call it, there is always the need of co like a convergence of many different mm -hmm. things. You, you need mm -hmm. the human to be there. You need the need, but you also need the technology to do it. I mean, you may have a dreamer, uh, I don't know, a Leonardo mm -hmm. da Vinci that dream about flying was great but the technology certainly wasn't there and now now we mm -hmm. do so even the battery yeah. itself i mean i i was reading a while back that the first cars were actually with an electric uh, engine and i'm like wow okay <laughs> why why we didn't go that road right because then maybe uh the 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 engine uh, the combustion engine was easier to do at the time. So from mm -hmm. a technology perspective, it seems to me we're starting to get to the sweet spot where you're saying, you know, 39 mm -hmm. companies now in the US are making battery, the battery are getting better and better. Again, people are not going to get stranded on the street when they drive. I mean, you, you can go a long way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, it's, it's awfully getting cheaper and cheaper to get all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. from a technology perspective, what do you think could be something that would really make a big change and a big push to become even more uh, seen as an investment, not only in the future of our planet, of our well-being, but also economically speaking, and we're not going back to carbon fossil? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So you, you bring up a really good point in that, you know, there's the technology evolution and what we call the learning curve. So for every time you double manufacturing capacity, how much does that price curve come down? And something that is still an old stereotype of the early solar industry that it was, you know, not cost effective is no longer the case. So what a lot of people don't realize is that between 2010 and 2019, the cost of solar came down about 95% per, per watt. And that's a really big step function. It is now the cheapest source of energy in the world. And so we saw those same cost declines across wind, and then solar, and now we're seeing similar cost declines in battery technologies. And the next major sector that we expect to see those is hydrogen. And so, you know, each one of those represents fundamental kind of reshifting of the industry. Certain markets like California, for example, have gotten so saturated with solar that at peak sun, kind of around midday, solar is providing 100% of the energy for the state. 
But the challenge is then when you shift to all of a sudden the sun starts to go down and we have to ramp up natural gas plants, how do you shift that energy from the middle of the day to those kind of peak shoulder loads? And so that's where storage is going to begin to play an increasingly important role. Batteries are challenging because they don't necessarily provide the really long duration storage that's necessary for kind of grid balancing. However, they can begin to shift that peak load. And we're seeing alternative battery chemistries, for example, form energy is doing an iron air battery that just use a basic oxidation process to do long duration storage and that can then suddenly become a grid resource and so you know that innovation is shifting and and those technologies are now moving out of kind of pilot and early commercialization into actually scalable phases and so i'm optimistic that again we're going to see those cost curves come down and, and see then greater penetration of those technologies in terms of market share and then hydrogen is an exciting new kind of vertical within the energy toolkit in that it can be directly burnt or mixed with existing fuels so natural gas for example it can be blended into a mix and you can then have a higher concentration of, of zero carbon fuel in there. You can additionally use it as an energy storage medium and potentially use some of the existing infrastructure for natural gas. You know, those pipes have to be retrofitted, relined, different pumps, et cetera. It's not an easy process, but you can use some of that existing uh, infrastructure and then you don't have those stranded assets that, you know, will provide a really heavy financial tax on many of these energy players. And so it also, you know, kind of can potentially provide a bridge fuel to help bring some of the energy majors that, you know, were very fossil intensive and, and bring them into using that like existing technology. For example, you can create hydrogen from natural gas and with carbon capture and sequestration, it can be a, a zero carbon fuel source. And so, you know, it helps again with this transition, but we need to see the adoption of fuel cell technologies come down in price and mature. Additionally, then the infrastructure to support, um, you know, greater hydrogen penetration in the energy mix. So then, you know, there are long, call it, you know, towards the end of the century innovations, we saw uh, the ignition at the Lawrence Berkeley nu uh, nuclear labs where they saw the first fusion ignition. And while that is still just lab technology, they've been working on that innovation for 60 or 70 years now. And supporting technology infrastructure like artificial intelligence is helping them gather more and more data from every test that they do and kind of plasma experimentation in a way that, you know, we weren't previously able to capture that. So I see the learning curve accelerating with respect to those future technologies as well, and they can play fundamental roles in the access to zero carbon energy. Yeah, definitely. Those are things that makes me feel uh, very optimistic. Like when I land in uh, in Amsterdam, when I go to visit my family in Italy, and and I see a turbine in the water, and I see. Mm -hmm. And I see a very, very high adoption of, of mm -hmm. you know, it, it's just giving an example that can be done and we don't need to get stuck in the past and be afraid because, again, A, we don't have alternative. B, we do have the technology. It's, it's for real. Mm -hmm. I would like with you to touch on something that I, I think about a lot from a sociological perspective and it's it's kind of like you know th this view of a global village just to mention McLuhan and the fact that though i i believe that as we become one facing 
the same problem. Maybe a pandemic, maybe a climate change, maybe anything else. I think it's proving that we, when we think together, we act together, we are better as, as humanity. Now, being very mm -hmm. idealistic here. But also, mm -hmm. I, I'm a big fan of keeping diversity, keeping the community, working on a small community level so that you don't just get everything needs to be brought up. I mean, from the top down, but also from mm -hmm. the bottom up, which makes me connect with what you're doing with Climatize. So mm -hmm. I, I want to ask you, what are some example of the project that people can get involved when they mm -hmm. spend their $5 investment, but also mm -hmm. your view on uh, how maybe smaller municipalities, smaller community could come together, right? Mm -hmm. And and build, I don't know, I'm envisioning what if a block comes together and they all make a mm -hmm. battery <laughs> to mm -hmm. store mm -hmm. all the solar power instead of everybody on his own. I mean, I, I can see that a lot could be done mm -hmm. crowdsourcing, not just on the internet, in terms of investment, mm -hmm. um, in something else, but investing for themselves together. I don't know if I'm making mm -hmm. sense, but be active mm -hmm in the community, how can we do that? Yeah, so that's really the vision and kind of the desire behind Climatize is that we are enabling communities to invest in their own energy resources. And in a way that can not only benefit, you know, your wallet, but also the climate fight. And so we see that there are a lot of projects in kind of the mid market space between about $100,000 all the way up to five, $5 million that really struggle to attract financing because they're kind of below the transaction limit of what many commercial banks will go and participate at. And so the project developers have oftentimes funded these projects off of their own balance sheet. And so by being able to raise capital from the communities that they are building these projects in provides a very meaningful bridge to help get some of these projects up and off the ground. And so we have seen projects come across our desks that are for anything from a boys and girls club, uh, a Shakespeare theater, a synagogue, you know, a commercial building, but is then, you know, benefiting a low income community, uh, a very broad range of very community centric projects. And that's where we see a meaningful place for crowdfunding or what we're calling community rounds to really participate in accelerating the energy transition locally. Additionally, you know, there is a company that we're planning uh, on working with and they aim to do energy efficiency upgrades for multi-tenant buildings. And they have been very outspoken about wanting to have the community participate and fund those projects because it creates a very virtuous cycle in the community when, for example, instead of the underwriter being you know, a large commercial bank and the yield on those projects being siphoned off to Manhattan, instead it can stay in the community and really create that virtuous cycle wherein you know, they are reducing pollution locally, they're creating local jobs, and then the yield on these, these lending products is staying there locally. And so we believe that that really has a meaningful role to accelerate, you know, kind of local energy resilience and provide a more kind of democratic and social experience to how we respond financially to climate action and accelerate climate finance through everyday participation. 
Yeah, and another lesson here is that we always think, for example, smart cities. I love to talk about smart cities. And you always think mm -hmm. about the big city being the one that needs to lead because they have the money, they have the infrastructure, but they also, they're big. <laughs> it's complicated. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of decision, mm -hmm. a lot of negotiation, a lot of power. So you think about LA, San Francisco, New York. But then, for example, one of my last uh, podcasts I just uh, published, it was with the uh, with the CTO of uh, Peach Trees Corner in, in Georgia, right near Atlanta, which is like 10 years old city, which is known to be honestly like a lab for anything IoT, anything smart city, because they can test in a small scale and, and show you that it can be done with as much smaller mm -hmm. investment as if you're going to drive Waymo cars in San Francisco, <laughs> that you need permits mm -hmm. and, you know, it's complicated. So in a way, I, I'm associating the conversation with it's good to start also from the bottom, from mm -hmm. a concentric way of thinking, small, prove the works, somebody else can do it, and then and then you, you grow that. Because I'm also assuming that the investment, the permits, and all of that to make it happen can be a lot faster, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, we've seen that projects that are operating at this kind of more community level distribution grid level can oftentimes move through the interconnection queue more quickly than large utility scale projects because they don't necessarily require the same kind of grid upgrades that, you know, a very large high voltage utility scale project might. And they can be strategically co-located co either in schools or parking garages, et cetera, in a way that they're not also competing for land with, say, potentially crops or other, you know, commodities that we need as a society. So uh, to your point, yes, there's there's lots of advantages to having more community centric energy projects that are closer to the demand centers. Right. And as we're going from the top to the community, I want to go to the individual to, mm -hmm. to end this. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. We see a lot in the news, there's a lot of group of activists, sometimes they piss off people because they go in now and <laughs> they put uh, carbon paints in the Trevi fountains. It makes mm -hmm. the news. People hate it. It's like, why are you doing that? You're not going to resolve the problem. But, you know, well, mm -hmm. at least we, we hear about the problem. I'm not saying I'm, mm -hmm. uh, I'm pro for that kind of action, but I am supporting definitely individual and small group taking action so from you that you grew up with this you've been in the street you've been in the technology side you're building something that is i think it's 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 really it's really interesting for people to re figure out how to can actually make money and, and invest your money into something good if you had to give an advice to you know young kids today teenagers that wants to get involved they, they don't just want to read about it they want to do something about it mm -hmm. what do you suggest them to do mm -hmm. yeah definitely so you know the most impactful ways that you can make a difference when it comes to climate action are a what you do with your work every single day you know you spend an enormous amount of time and in your career and in your job. And so making sure or looking to find a job that is helping a climate tech company, uh, 
people often think that climate tech companies are purely for engineers and, and scientists, and that is no longer the case. You know, there is a huge generation of climate tech companies that need everyone from accountants to marketers to, you know, everyone across the board. And so I would suggest going to look at resources like ClimateBase, for example, that are really great platforms and are helping with this transition into the climate workforce. And then really the next biggest lever is where your money is not only banked, but also invested. Many of the banks are some of the worst purpose, like they're the biggest funders of the fossil fuel industry. And so thinking about, you know, what are the like underlying values of your bank? And if they are one of the major funders of fossil fuels, you know, considering moving that over to a more sustainable, you know, bank. And then ultimately, how are you investing it? And are your investments aligned with the values that you have? And if you want to focus on, you know, really putting your money directly investing into renewable energy projects, then come and look at Climatize and see that you can, you know, support these projects, invest in these projects with as little as $5. And we did that intentionally because we want this to be accessible to anybody and everybody. You know, energy as an asset class was previously only for the wealthy. And we've seen entire countries be founded upon energy resources. You look at the Saudi Arabias, the Venezuelas, the Russias of the world. And then some of the most like valuable private companies in the world are the fossil fuel and energy majors. And so expanding access to the ability to invest in and, and potentially earn a return on investment from energy assets is something that we're really excited about and, and have high conviction that this is a way that provides you know, a channel for everyday people to play a really meaningful role in accelerating the energy transition. So first, how you work and second, what your money is doing. And so please, you know, go take a look at, at Climatize. You can find us on the App Store, uh, the iOS App Store, or at our website, www.climatize.earth. And from there, take a look through the opportunities. And if it's a fit, then, you know, please start, start making some investments. It's a really impactful way to do it. Yeah, and uh, we'll certainly have the link to, to your profiles and people can get in touch with you and... Uh, and they can find that in the note for this podcast. And uh, I, I would say, uh, you, you, I'm, I'm glad we had this conversation. It's a great example of, first of all, you're very knowledgeable, but also very passionate about what you do and very, very logic about it. <laughs> a very analytic <laughs> mind. And I, and I appreciate that. Like Sometimes we, we let passion to you know, lead, but I think we need, mm. we need both because you're not going to convince the politician to take action just with with passion you need to show mm -hmm. them again the money the return for the constituent and for those that let's face it financed them so mm -hmm. with that said i hope that people will get inspired even go and start your own business do some research on all the things that will said and uh, and uh, stay tuned, share this conversation. If you found it uh, interesting for you, it's probably going to be interesting for your friends and family and co-worker. And uh, again, all together, maybe we can make our voice heard. So, Will, thank you so much again. And everybody stay tuned, subscribe, and um, to the next one. Thank you, Marco. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. 
Devo unlocks the full value of machine data for the world's most instrumented enterprises. The Devo Data Analytics Platform addresses the explosion in volume of machine data and the crushing demands of algorithms and automation. Learn more at Devo.com. BugCrowd's award-winning platform combines actionable contextual intelligence with the skill and experience of the world's most elite hackers to help leading organizations identify and fix vulnerabilities, protect customers, and make the digitally connected world a safer place. Learn more at bugcrowd.com. Black Cloak provides concierge cybersecurity protection to corporate executives and high net worth individuals to protect against hacking, reputational loss, financial loss, and the impacts of a corporate data breach. Learn more at blackcloak.io. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.